0: Thank you very much for staying for this part of the afternoon. It's very good to see most of you here and thank you to SRHE for the invitation. Um, And apologies, my co-author of the report, the title of which is on the screen. Can't be here today, I think she's in Vienna, so uh, she sends her apologies. Uh, I'm going to begin with an overview to provide some context for the report and then go into our findings on access and how they relate to funding and sustainability and look at some cross-country comparisons, as has already been mentioned. I just wanted to say right at the beginning that the last PIN event I was at was in December at Celtic Manor, and the principal of my college was there, David Watson. Sorry, Jill, can I just ask you what a PIN event is? Postgraduate Issues Network, which is what... What we're at today. Yeah, this is yeah. the first one of these I've been through. So okay, yeah. sorry. So I haven't yeah. heard the I've learned a lesson never talk in acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my point is that uh, as a student, I found David Watson's intervention really helpful at my session. I was talking about my own research that day, and he was an amazing mentor. And so it's a great loss that he's died. I just wanted to say that because uh, you mentioned him, Paul, at the beginning. <coughs> So, um, I'm not precious about going through the presentation and not having questions so if you've got something burning to ask that you don't want to wait till the end for then interrupt me please. Okay, the title of the report is International Comparisons in Postgraduate Education and the three themes that Hefke asked us to look at were quality, access and employment outcomes. So clearly I'm only going to focus on the middle one of those today. Um the report is based on qualitative data, but we've used other people's quantitative information throughout the report, which I think is quite a nice combination um, and there are lots of references okay I haven't put any references in the talk today, but there are many of them and partly the reason for that is I want you to look at the report after today if you can um, you know none of us publishes uh, paper copies of things now but it's really hard to get people to look at online published information. So this is a summary of the findings or the and the structure of the report. We did case studies on seven countries. England was the eighth country and instead of doing a separate case study on England, I'll shout a bit more loudly, Uh, we use the main report to draw out comparisons between England and the rest, and uh, we have a section at the end of the first part of the report which um, focuses on strengths and challenges in the various countries. The report looks at both PGT and PGR education, but today, as has already been said, I'm going to focus a little bit more on PGR. Um, We interviewed academic staff from all the countries, either because they were here, or we had coincidental visits to the countries, or we did them by Skype. Um, We weren't, unfortunately, able to interview students within the scope of the project, but we really would have liked to do that. And we're considering whether we might be able to do Um, something on that about student views at some point in the future. Our brief wasn't to address funding issues specifically, however I think this is a point that's already been made um, by the other research and the speakers today. Funding and sustainability of postgraduate education affect all three of the themes we were asked to look at, but in particular we were told fair access is bound to be affected by funding, and I think that's absolutely obvious. Another thing I wanted to say just by way of introduction is that across the board, uh, in all the eight countries, there was recognition to a greater or lesser degree that postgraduate degrees were valued by different stakeholders, including employers. And with national governments taking steps to strengthen postgraduate education in different ways, depending on the context of the country and again that's that's been mentioned. Um, sustainability strategies for doctoral education are usually though part of a broader initiative to develop and enhance research capability. so very very differentiated um, strategies. now this is part of my scene setting and the context. Um, apart from in India, these are numbers about enrollment, okay? Not the awards made. In India, it's very hard to get any hard data, reliable data, on how many awards are made annually. Uh, lots of other stuff, but not that. And I've used some colors, so the pale mauve color and the pale green just to highlight some of the points I think, we think, are most interesting here in the context. Um, in Australia, England, Norway, and Scotland, and the US, postgraduates make up more than 30% of the degrees awarded annually. So that actually correlates with um, some of the things that, that Paul and Sally were saying. If you look at the right hand column, this one that's split here, um, It's interesting that already around 31% of uh, German postgraduate degrees are PhDs, very interesting. We didn't know that before we set about collecting this data. And I'm sure it's no coincidence that in Germany doctorates are highly valued. not just by the industries that employ large numbers of of doctoral researchers, but more widely. So if you want a top job in Germany, you're expected to have a doctorate. And I think we're quite a way away from that here. Um, The US has the highest... Sorry, after, after Germany, the US has the next highest proportion of doctoral graduates, around 19%. And remains the largest producer of postgraduates, although China is not far behind these days. There's a graph in the report that shows you a few countries, and India, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, but on the other hand, they have a very large population, um, has the lowest proportion of postgraduates in higher education compared with the other countries. So they're they're around 13%. Okay, so that's that's my scene setting. So today, uh, this is what I'm going to try and cover, uh, looking at data from all of the countries. So, this is our summary uh, about fair access. Ways in which commitment to access is demonstrated vary depending on the context in the country. But in most countries, the policy angle is we really care about fair access. The extent to which that's demonstrated in practical terms varies, so it's definitely high on the policy agenda. Um, And access was one of the areas where our findings were highly context-specific, and we'll see that in the different countries. Now, I thought... um, it was important to have a definition of, of fair access as we interpreted it for our report and for our data collection. So, um, we considered fair access to be initiatives that were taken to remove financial and other barriers um, to provide opportunities to postgraduates who had the academic potential to succeed. And actually, we've been talking about widening parta- participation in those terms today, um, but we we did not because we, when we looked at other definitions, sorry, definitions of widening participation, we <coughs> found that it usually involved adjusting entry requirements to facilitate participation um, of underrepresented groups. So we've made that distinction very definitely in our report. So it's removal of barriers, financial and other, that we mean when we say fair access. But obviously the boundaries are blurred and it's a bit of a false dichotomy in some ways, but we we tried to to maintain that. Um, Universities Scotland is very interesting on the point of accessibility. Um, They say it's based on ability rather than means and they've um, had this Action on Access initiative which is interesting. And one one of our challenges, as has been mentioned already, was to find out whether graduates from backgrounds underrepresented in higher education retain that status when they go on to postgraduate study. Our UK contributors suggested that graduates from these groups are more likely to be aware of the status of their undergraduate institution in the pecking order within the UK, Um, but contributors said that on reaching postgraduate study background no longer matters. In in other words, to them when they were recruiting postgraduates background was immaterial. They looked at their academic results. Um, So all our evidence points to recruitment solely on the basis of academic achievement rather than personal background but then there are those who don't make it for a variety of reasons and we're interested in them too. Uh, Another a couple of points on the summary. There are good examples of the use of credit and lifelong learning in the US to help support fair access. There are excellence initiatives in Germany, Norway, and Spain, um, on the face of it, introduced to strengthen research but actually benefiting um, access. And uh, in India, inevitably, there's a dual focus on um, widening participation and access. I mean, in India, they have an enormous mountain to climb, so I'm going to say something about that in a moment. So, I'm just going to take you through country by country with a few more details about each one, which I hope will be interesting. If you are from any of these countries, and obviously, Brooke is from one of the countries, I'm going to say now, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody or get anything completely wrong. Okay? Um, I know quite a lot about some of them, but I'm not the Europe expert. My colleague in- Ingrid did most of the research on Germany, Norway and Spain. However, I'm fast getting up to speed having had to present the report at various, um, in various contexts. So we're going to start with Australia. Um, Just broadly, funding is a feature of most countries' fair access strategies, which is a good thing. Um, We've got in the report an annex on each of the countries except England, and there's a lot of detail detail in those annexes, so I'm hoping to encourage you to actually look at the detail as well as the big picture. Um, Okay, so in Australia, immediate advantage is there are no tuition fees for research degrees. Um, there's a generous training scheme for sponsored students, there's a historical commitment to fair access because of the indigenous groups as Tony mentioned earlier, they're often also from low socioeconomic backgrounds. backgrounds. Key access targets were announced by the Australian government in 2008. One of them was, by 2020, 20% of undergraduates should be from low socioeconomic backgrounds, which obviously will have an impact on progression to postgraduate degrees. Um, <coughs> in Australia, there's some in the academic literature, there's some opposition to this deficit model targeting particular groups, um, with calls instead for much broader support for fair access across different groups. And that took me back to um, some of the things that were said earlier about did, did um, people on, in your study um, want to be identified with their group or not. And I think it's very interesting because undergraduates often don't want to be identified if they've got special scholarships. I know that from my professional work, so um, an interesting difference there. Um, now we're going to look at India. There's a shortage of PhD graduates, Um, you can deduce that from the figures I showed you just now, Um, but that's led to capacity building programmes for academic staff in uh, universities. So a lot of people teaching in Indian universities don't have PhDs. Um, There's a significant contrast between opportunities for postgraduate study across the board, um, depending on whether you live in an urban or a rural environment in India. In India there are still some people who don't go to school um, and clearly that has an impact on access to postgraduate education in the most fundamental way. Um, And also women are disadvantaged because they're thought to have particular roles in society in India so there are lower proportions of women in postgraduate education. Um, However, the good story about India is that positive discrimination and widening participation in the sense I... Explained earlier, um, are are really targeting um, groups of complete underrepresentation in postgraduate education. So the caste system is a factor in the government's affirmative action scheme, and there's a national entry test because they also have worries about quality um, going into to postgraduate education. They've got a national entry test for postgraduate study to. Uh, Everybody, that everybody must take, no matter what kind of postgraduate degree they're going into, um, and they also have a very interesting scheme of small-scale internments, um, which, of course, only the confident apply for. And um, internships sorry, did I say internment? <laughs> sorry, they, no, they don't intern them. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's a very Freudian slip. But there's evidence. We spoke to one person who was actually a visiting professor over here and he was very passionate about how those are working and um, the, the increasing take-up of those um, but worried about people not having the confidence, people from underrepresented groups not having the confidence to apply for them even though they probably get them. Um, so in the US again like Australia there's this historical commitment to um, fair access partly because of um, large indigenous um, large immigrant populations here um, there are major federal loans available for postgraduate degrees like about 150 billion dollars annually and federal student aid encourages combined work and study and I want to come back to that point in my conclusions because I think it's quite relevant to everything that's been said this afternoon so far um, There's research that says graduate students from African and Hispanic communities um, have larger levels of debt than white students, African-American and Hispanic communities. And one very positive finding we had from the U.S. was the use of community colleges in lifelong learning and widening access. Um, So in 2009-10, 12% of those graduating with a doctorate in the U.S., had obtained credit at some point in their academic life through a community college, slightly more likely for women than men. However, uh, as with all the countries in the study, except two, um, funding constraints mean that fewer grants may be available um, in the future. Buoyant situation when we looked at it, but we're now nearly a year on, and I don't know how that's playing out. So, we've done Australia, India, the US, we're now going to look at mainland Europe. Um, in Norway, um, higher education spending is prioritized by the government, and in some of the discussions earlier, I was thinking, well, why don't we just raise people's taxes if, we really, if we're really, really passionate about this? Um, I'm sure that wouldn't be popular here, but that's how they do it in Norway. So, okay, it's all free in Norway embedded in the culture. Um, the numbers of PhD candidates in Norway doubled from between 2000 and 2011. They have low interest support loans. There are relatively few, num- few universities offering doctorates. There are only eight kind of real universities in Norway and then there are some other colleges that do have the power to offer doctorates but very small numbers there. Um, so there's a bit of a, num- a monopoly. Um, One thing that's a risk for the UK, I would say, is that in Norway, even international students don't pay fees. And, you know, it's very easy to get by, I understand, with some English in Norway. Um, Scholarships are generous. The average age of doctoral graduates is higher than in the UK. In the UK, I think it's about 27. I haven't looked that up recently, but I think it is. Um, And it's 36 in Norway. Um, And doctoral candidates are treated as temporary staff to help integration and support job applications because of the few academic jobs available. In Norway, they also have grants to help people who are parents, um, to help people at all stages of their life um, go into postgraduate education. And I think that's a good societal move that they've made there. In Germany, um, participation rate in HE... uh, In 2011 was already 51 percent. There's generous federal training assistance and there has been since 1971. Grants include master's studentships and um, they're especially aimed at students from lower-income backgrounds. PhD candidates often employed part-time as research assistants or in industry and there are many many private foundations Some of them private-public partnerships that support PhDs. To mention a few you may have heard of. Volkswagen, Alexander Humboldt Foundation, DAAD, Leibniz Association and the Max Planck Group. So there's support for both Masters and Doctoral Scholarships in Germany and they do look at income-related issues. So Spain... Huge growth in professional master's programmes, that's also true in some of the other countries, but um, it's particularly interesting in Spain, I think, because it's linked with employability. Tuition fees are calculated based on credit, but they're still very low compared with countries like England and the United States. Specific grants are based on academic performance. to support students from low-income families. The take-up is 15 to 20% of the student population. The government is considering introducing student loans, although there's no tradition of higher education loans in Spain, and students often attend their local university. So, you know, here is the picture. In every country, the local circumstances are different, and the governments have to look out for those. Now, Scotland, You know, Scotland's a very interesting case, and in many ways they're (coughs) admirable. They're fortunate, like Norway, though, in being a small country, I would say, um, in this context anyway. And, of course, um, they've addressed the issue of access through the government initiative called Action on Access, and it's all levels of of education. So that, that seamless transition from one to another when you're looking at these things, I think is very helpful because... You know, one of the obvious points coming out of all this research we're looking at is that you have to get people earlier on in their academic life and not wait until they're just about to graduate from their first degree. Um, There's a linked report to Action on Access called Access All Areas, and there are some case studies there. They're not postgraduate specific, but they're really interesting. Um, But there is a strong focus on fair access at postgraduate level both full time and part time. Um, and they look at entry straight after the first degree and also returners. Um, and the current funding system in Scotland of course continues to disadvantage English English postgraduates. Um, and England. So uh, there's an obvious question right at the beginning there. Um, and we have yet to see how these, this first group of people graduating from the 9,000 fee band um, uh, is going to affect postgraduate recruitment in the coming few years. Um, research from the United States indicates that graduate students have accumulated debt burdens. So even in 2008, 73% of graduating master's students with loans had an average cumulative debt or forty one thousand dollars and 67 percent of doctoral graduates in the same year had an average cumulative debt of sixty thousand dollars um you know i think it's important to look at what's happening in other places i'm not saying it's going to happen here or is happening here but it's interesting and you know there are similar problems in other parts of the world and in australia you know they've had um postgraduate loans for for a while and they've had some problems for example um, similar to the ones that we've had with undergraduate loans here in that they're not being paid back Mm -hmm. because people aren't getting jobs over £21,000 salaries so unlike in Europe where part time study is considered a realistic option at postgraduate level um, in England it's not really embedded in the culture I would say from, from people we talk to Except, of course, in professionally-oriented programmes where people might be sponsored anyway by their employers. Um, and another point that was made to us about England, which I think is worth mentioning, is that institutions need intelligent recruitment systems to ensure that people from underrepresented groups are applying, um, who are applying for postgrad are given proper attention. I mean, I think your study is very helpful in, in that respect. And um, you know, maybe people who are recruiting will will think differently about how they do it in the future. So that's broadly speaking, access in the eight countries. So now sustainability. Right. Um, clearly, um, governments may be prioritising access, but they're not prioritising funding for postgraduate education. Uh, it seemed to us from this study. Um, and much greater dependence across the board on um, different funding sources, so diversification of funding sources for postgraduates. And you know, how sustainable is postgraduate education going to be in the future in all these countries? Well. Only India and Norway have increased well, India's increased. Norway has maintained levels of public funding in parallel with the growth of private institutions. Private institutions um, figure quite largely in our report, um, in the growth area. Um, And private higher education brings its own problems for access, um, if only those who can afford it are going to go into postgraduate study. The reliance on alternative sources of funding often involves shifting tuition costs to students, which we've been talking about, and has inevitable consequences for fair access, clearly borne out by a variety of research. So the reasons for questioning sustainable expansion vary from country to country. Sometimes it's about money, and sometimes it's about quality, and whether you can get high enough quality entrants. So even maintaining numbers is a challenge in some countries, let alone increasing them. Now, I want to go back to m- my professional life of about four years ago for a while and say that um, in all the time I worked in an institution of whatever kind, uh, universities' aspirations year on year were to increase postgraduate numbers, okay? always in the university strategic plan, okay, we're going to increase our numbers, and usually those aspirations bore no relation to reality, and what we've seen in the UK is that we've had an expansion in postgraduate taught programmes, quite a lot of that is to do with professional, growth of professionally related programmes like in law, uh, engineering, um, computing, some other things, but in PGR, the numbers have often decreased, you know, or remained static. So I always wondered, you know, naively, why you would keep saying you want to increase PGR numbers when the last 10 years' data showed you that you weren't doing it. I mean, I think it's a worthwhile aspiration, but I think some countries have decided that they want, they've reached capacity of PGR, particularly, um, and... You know, that's not a a good point, but it's an interesting one, I think, to make for the purposes of this this presentation. Um, And I think the proportion of international students to home students is also a consideration, that's been mentioned. Um, And some countries need to consider this as part of their sustainability planning. Um, The capacity to continue recruiting current numbers of international students for some countries, including England, is a factor. Uh, This slide is from a Hefke report of a couple of years ago, but it's good at demonstrating the different um, flows in support to postgraduate students. That's both kinds of students. Those are just the main sources, but I also wanted to say that when that report was written, around 40% of all postgraduate research students um, had no financial backing whatsoever. So they're in your group of self-paying their own fees from savings or whatever. Um, And the picture was worse for PGT. So I think this is actually very good evidence for what HEFKE is doing in their their funding now. 72% of full-time and 55% of part-time PGTs Uh, had no financial backing at all when that report was written Um, and I think there is now evidence that fewer master's students are progressing and we don't really know why why that's happening yet I would say but a result of this situation is that some universities prioritized funding for bursaries and scholarships for research students uh, just because I think they, they felt they were drying up and again The differences between subjects are enormous and I I don't think one can ever forget that really Um, in fair access terms it's it's true as every in everything else Um, so the impact of sustainability choices on access and I've tried to look at this from three different perspectives here Um, money looms large hence all the various currency signs I'm sorry, but I had to put the pound with the Scottish pound. I think that's quite an indication of what the SNP think they're doing at the moment, probably taking us over. I have Scottish, some Scottish relatives, so um, you know, if you're Scottish and I'm offending you, I'm very sorry. But uh, I think it's quite interesting how we're going to become a state of Scotland in the future. Um, so research in the US shows that students from ethnic groups are more likely to be self-funding And therefore less able to secure stipends for research degrees and um, as regards the the UK I'm going to give you a quote from one of our respondents um, who had both an academic and a managerial focus in higher education in the UK quite a senior person and he referred to access to taught postgraduate provision as a serious problem we interviewed many men so I don't think I'm giving anything away there and suggested that some master's programmes are filled with overseas students and or British students from rich families. I think that's quite salutary. This is somebody without an axe to grind particularly, who has observed changes in demographics in uh, postgraduate programmes over the years. So, universities. I think it's, it's um, I mean, some, some of us like to be rather critical of people in senior management roles, but I think they have the unenviable task of prioritising funding. It was very reassuring to hear that what had happened with, with your project and uh, how universities had come up with their own funding to cover people who, um, you know, the overspill, as it were. And I think that's, that's a really good indication. But, but it's very difficult to prioritise. You know, if you've got increasing numbers of undergraduates year on year in some subjects, do you build them new accommodations so you get good NSS scores or do you allocate more postgraduate scholarships and studentships? I think those, those decisions are really difficult for universities. Um, and in government, you know, just being realistic, funding is unlikely to increase in times of austerity when you've got one f- 1. a yeah. £1.4 debt burden. Um, and initiatives, Martin was mentioning uh, about the, the recent budget and uh, this statement from George Osborne that there's going to be um, potentially studentships for PhD students, and uh, Mick Fuller did comment on that. Actually, there was an article in uh, one yeah. of the newspapers. Um, it might have been The Higher or it might have yeah, been yeah. The Guardian or whatever. Higher. Higher, yeah. Um, saying, you know, is this just an excuse for taking money away from the research councils? Is it new money or not? That's always a question. And um, I've mentioned Australia and the loans problem. Governments, however, are well aware of the capital that's invested in the country, um, given its research performance. And, you know, if you look at, we've got some figures in here um, on pages... uh, 11 and 12 there are a couple of figures there that show you how successful the UK is in in research terms compared with you know uh, the proportion of the population involved in higher education you know the output is massive I'm sure you all know the figures but they're quoted there and so government is only too well aware of how important research is but does not necessarily want to make the most of all the Talent that's available by supporting some fair access initiatives. Um, I know there are some. I'm not being overly critical, I hope. So, um, there's a slide in here which is just, I think, you know, entry levels and entry routes are so important for research degrees. And this slide is just included to note some of the diverse entry routes to doctoral study in England. They all present potential barriers for students from underrepresented groups. So the decline in one plus three for arts and humanities, and it may be that there'll be more three plus ones, but I can't really see it myself. Um, In arts and humanities subjects, you know, the tradition of integrated masters grew up from STEM subjects because people needed an extra year to catch up with with their maths. I mean, you know, I'm quite old, I remember when this happened. And uh, there's no ethos like that, no driver in some other subjects. But I think the one plus three um, decline is really, really um, affecting fair access. Um, And I think self-funders who have to study part-time, okay, I'm one of those people. And um, it's very difficult to prioritise. If you're working, you prioritise your work because people have deadlines that you promise to meet. And you don't do your own research. It's it's difficult. And, um, you know, other part-timers or other researchers will have family commitments. Norway is really, really exemplary in this because they give special grants if you've got family responsibilities. Um, I think there are potential problems for some returners in these these examples. And um, the action on access report from Scotland that I mentioned, notes the significance of discipline in the numbers of underrepresented students progressing to postgraduate education. So obviously easier for some rather than others to make the leap. And if you look at um, patterns of progression into research degrees, you know, if you're, if you're in STEM you go young, if you're in social sciences broadly you may well go well, well into middle age. And that's inevitably going to stop you from being so successful. And that's just a factor in those subjects. Nothing's going to change the subject. Um, That's how it seems to work. So, um, finishing off now. Unlike the overall findings of the report, where England comes out very well indeed, um, has a high... High positive profile for postgraduate education it doesn't compare so well with regard to access and sustainability I would say you can decide for yourselves if you read the report but there are a few I mean as has been pointed out we didn't have any special funding for postgrad education for many many years now it's all happening but we're catching up really with with some of the other countries um, But universities can do quite a lot themselves. I don't think universities can just rely on government funding. I think they do have to prioritise if they they really care about fair access. And, you know, there are arguments that universities have an ethical position to maintain. Then there can be some bottom-up prioritisation. Um, Another factor, I think, uh, on fair access and on, on individual universities' prioritisation is going to be an over-reliance on research council income in some universities. And there's a lot of debate about whether the research councils should be concentrating their PGR funding in so few universities. And I think this has a real impact on fair access, actually. Um, but then there might be some positives for that, in that universities who don't get it will try harder. I mean, it's, it's the, the kind of theme that's been running through some of our discussions. If, if things are difficult, you fight. And, you know, uh, if they're not so difficult, then you don't make that effort until you absolutely have to, possibly. Just speculating there. So I think the point about how many postgraduates each country needs is a real one and how many postgraduates can be funded by public money in each country and how much can be made up, for example, by international students. And if you're going to have larger numbers of international students, what does that do to your fair access pro- profile? I don't know. Um, another thing I would say here in concluding is that it's only England and Australia where employers criticise the skills of um, postgraduate employees. Um, in all of Europe, they seem to be highly, highly valued um, well, okay, somebody from Holland here, you may think not. But everybody we spoke to said, yes, they're valued and you know for, for everything they can bring. Not just their academic training, but all the other skills. And in some countries, of course, people take longer. In Germany and the United States, they have longer periods. they're more rounded, they may do other things. So in Germany, you may well be um, working for one of your professors all the time you're studying, but then that affects completion rates. So it's a difficult balance Um, last but potentially most important as far as I'm concerned is this uh, is higher education a leveller Um, I don't know whether it is I I think there remain issues of confidence of whether you fit in Um, certainly uh, personally I don't have a first degree I never thought I would go to university. I did a part time masters when I was working, and I'm just doing my PhD at a very advanced age. And I would never have had the confidence when uh, I was 18 to think that I could do these things. So I think it's a much more fundamental thing than just putting, you know, pushing money at it. I think it's getting to people when they're really young, when they're in secondary education. Um, helping improve their confidence, maybe getting them to work with employers as well as universities. I mean all these things are being tried out in the institution I used to work at. The worst problem was getting people to think they could do it. It wasn't even that they thought you were a stuck-up university, it was that they didn't have the confidence, the intellectual confidence to do it. So I think that's still an issue for fair access at postgraduate level. Um, and taking risks is really important for people and I think they're probably less inclined to take them uh, and to be self-funding when they've got a family and a mortgage than when they're you know, 23 or something. I think the stage at which you do things is really important. And I've mentioned subject differences, so um, I think I'm going to stop there say thank you very much for lasting till the end and I hope it was interesting.